Good morning, Strong Tower Bible Church. So as we come to the word of God at this time, would you turn to John chapter 11? John chapter 11. And I would like to send a word of caution before we get started. Um, if you have little ones in the room with you right now, um, I am going to be speaking on some things from scripture as well as from culture that deal with violence and bloodshed. So if you don't want your little ones to hear these things, you might want to escort them into another room and perhaps watch this sermon a little bit later. Uh, but today we're going to be uh, picking up our second message from our new series entitled, Trust Me, Trust Me. God is saying to you and God is saying to me in this hour and every hour, trust me, trust me, lean on him, depend on him, believe him. Trust me. And today we'll begin reading at John chapter 11. I'll read verses one through four. And the Bible reads, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now, verse 38. Then Jesus, again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So three times in these verses that I read to you, from John chapter 11, we see the word glory or glorify coming from the same root word in the Greek, doxa. And this word doxa in the Greek means splendor. It means brightness, radiance, brilliance. It speaks of light. So when you read the word glory in the New Testament, it's speaking of brilliance, radiance, magnificence, splendor light or in other words it's a way of saying that the light is shining on someone and in this case when we talk about the glory of God not only does light emanate from him but as saved sinners we put light back on him or glory back on him so it speaks of shining a light and so when we glorify God we are shining a light on him, saying to the world, look at him. Look at how marvelous and how wonderful and how loving and how kind and how gracious and how good God is. So our lives are to glorify him, to, to put the light, the spotlight, if you will, on God. And so in this context, in John chapter 11, there is a man who died, Lazarus. And in the midst of that sad and sorrowful situation, we see God being glorified or light being shown upon him. So permit me in this moment to preach a message entitled, Trust Me to Get Glory from Death. Trust me to get glory, to shine in the midst of death. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. It speaks to everything we go through in life. We thank you, Lord, that you did not leave us without instructions, but you left the word with us so that we could not only know your will, but, Lord, we know your heart. So, Lord, would your heart come forth today through this preaching, through my sharing of your word? Might your people learn today? Might we be edified today? And might we be stirred to action? We thank you, Lord. That in these uncertain times, you always give us a certain word, a sure word, a steady word, a dependable word, a trustworthy word. 
So, Lord, would you speak even through these lips of clay? I am your instrument, Lord. I empty myself and through the power of the Holy Spirit, his wind. Lord, would you play me today as your instrument? Lord, I pray that sounds would come forth from me today that sound like your voice, that you would calm your people, that, Lord, you would confront your people. You would soothe your people and, Lord, you would motivate your people today. Thank you for the word. It will not return void. I bless you and I thank you in advance for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. This passage in John chapter 11, which was written over 2,000 years ago, is relevant to us today in 2020. Because on Tuesday, the nation awakened to the news of the unjust and barbaric killing of Mr. George Floyd at the hands of the Minneapolis Police Department. As Mr. Floyd's death has sparked national outrage, I stand here as a kingdom optimist to say, I believe God will use Mr. Floyd's death to his honor and to his glory. You see, this is now the third homicide of an unarmed black person in a span of 30 days at the hands of rogue police officers or former police officers operating as vigilantes. First, there was Amon Aubrey in Glen County, Georgia. Then there was Brianna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky. And now there is George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Prophetically, I believe God is using the blood of these three African-Americans to bring about needed change and hopefully lasting change in America. For instance, in 1955, God used the brutal death of Emmett Till to birth the civil rights movement. On September 15, 1963, not even a month after the march on Washington and Dr. King saying that he had a dream, four little black girls were killed when a bomb went off inside of a Birmingham church. I believe God used their deaths to remind America that the fight against racism was far from over, that it's time to stop dreaming and wake up. And in 2012, God used the gratuitous homicide of Trayvon Martin to spark a movement in America to tell America and to remind America that black lives matter. Racism is first and foremost a murderous and demonic spirit. We know that as the people of God, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. We are to cast down spiritual strongholds using spiritual weapons that God has given us. The weapon of love, the weapon of grace, the weapon of prayer, the weapon of forgiveness that God has given the church, his body, power from on high to make a difference on earth, even as it is in heaven. So racism is spiritual, first and foremost. But what if, what if, what if, Strong Tower, what if God is once again exposing this ugly spirit of racism in this country so that we can finally dismantle it within our structures? Mm. It's not just enough to deal with racism on an interpersonal level. But we also need to deal with racism as it exists within institutions in our country that continue to oppress certain people groups in the country. So, yes, you and I need to be good neighbors and we need to love and forgive one another. But we also need to move these relationships into institutions where much of the oppression takes place because racism is prejudice plus power and it is used to keep certain people down while lifting certain people up. And so therefore, what if God is exposing this spirit so that we can finally dismantle it within our structures? If so, and I believe that he is, 
It is imperative for us to keep our knee on the neck of the spirit so that it doesn't get back up and do what it has been doing since we got here in this country. And so I believe God is at work at this time. And when we come to John chapter 11, although Lazarus did not die a violent death, his death could have been avoided. Although he did not die a violent death, his death could have been avoided because it appears that his sickness was something that Jesus could cure him and heal him of. And they were expecting him to recover because of his relationship with Jesus. So in a real sense, his death could have been avoided. The same could be said of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. Their deaths could have been and should have been avoided. Like Ahmaud Arbery, Taylor, uh, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, it seems that Lazarus died young. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how old he was, but since he had a relationship with Jesus, Jesus was in his early 30s before he died or when he died. And so, therefore, it, it's plausible to suggest that Lazarus was somewhere uh, in that age bracket with Jesus. And so when we think of Amon Arbery being 25 and Breonna Taylor being 25 and George Floyd being 46, they all died too young. Like Aubrey, Taylor, and Floyd, Lazarus' death rocked the community in his day. And so we are seeing the community around the world because the Internet has caused the world to become one big neighborhood. And so we are seeing that uh, uh, the world has been rocked, especially the United States of America, especially Minneapolis, Minnesota. It has been rocked through the death of Mr. Floyd. And as with Lazarus, Jesus loves Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. The Bible says that Jesus loved Lazarus. And we know that he loves you, he loves me, and he loves our deceased brothers and sister. But I know what someone may be thinking right now, and that is, if Jesus loved Lazarus, why did he let him die? And if Jesus loved these three unarmed African-American people, why did he allow them to die such horrible, violent deaths? Well, um, I'm not going to try and answer that because I am a mere man. And the Bible says in Romans 11, verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord? It goes on to say, who can instruct the Lord or tell the Lord how to do his business? We're told in the Old Testament that God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, which is why we must go back to the fact we must trust him even when we don't understand him. So we must be careful as finite people to try to question God. We can ask him questions, but we need to be careful to, to not question him because, again, he is sovereign and he does as he pleases. And we must believe our theology must hold us when life tries to hurt us. We must believe that this God is good, even when circumstances are bad. So in ways known only to him, does he allow good people to die tragic deaths? But I'm here to say today through this sermon, he can use, what he allows, he uses. And he uses for his glory in order to touch and change and save lives. Oh, I pray that you hang with me through this passage. God can get glory from death because death does not have the final word. God has the final word. So God is going to get glory. He always gets glory, even through death. Uh, God gets glory from death when he turns death into life and he turns negativity into positivity. John chapter 11, verse 45 says, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. That's glory right there. Something good came out of the death and the subsequent resurrection of Lazarus. Many people, the Bible says, believed in Jesus. 
but also there was a strong line of demarcation drawn because there were many who also hated Jesus after the resurrection of Lazarus. And there were people who wanted to kill Jesus and even kill Lazarus. But that's foolish because you're going to kill a man that Jesus has already raised from the dead, which means that Jesus can raise him from the dead again if he wants to. But what we're seeing here is that there will be times after death and through death that God will get the glory and Satan will be upset when God turns death on its head. And by the way, the Bible says that many believed in Jesus. Believing in Jesus is the greatest miracle that can ever occur for any human being. Because it's one thing for Lazarus to be raised from the dead. That's a miracle. But the greatest miracle is that Lazarus' sins were forgiven because the one who was raised from the dead would eventually die again. And so that miracle would, in a sense, blow away in the wind. But the one who had his sins forgiven received eternal life and nothing would separate Lazarus from that life in Christ. And so for me, you're looking at a miracle right now, not because God has done miracles in my life and he's done that. But the greatest miracle is that he saved me. I was lost and now I'm found. I am born again, man. Oh, that's the greatest miracle. And no one is going to change that. Man, my course is set. I'm seated with Jesus in heavenly places. I'm already glorified. I'm just waiting to get to heaven to put my robe on. All right. And so that's the miracle that a sinner has been saved. Oh, I hope that's part of your testimony this morning. If you're watching, I hope you can say that I know that miracle. Yes, I'm a miracle because I met the miracle maker, Jesus, and he saved me and he changed my life. I just wasn't following him to get to heaven. I was following him because he is a life changer. Oh my, can I get a witness this morning? Can the cyber church say amen? Well, only a good God can get glory from a bad situation. He can even get glory, listen to this, from a violent and bloody situation. And I want to share three biblical examples with you to prove this point, that God can get glory even from a bloody, violent situation. God received glory, the Bible lets us know, from the violent deaths of Abel in the Old Testament, of Stephen in the New Testament, and of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God received glory from these violent deaths of these three individuals. So let's look first at how God received glory from the violent death of Abel. The Bible says that Abel was killed by his brother Cain. Genesis 4, 8 says, Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Now, we don't know exactly how Cain killed his brother, but however he killed him, there was a shedding of blood in which we'll read momentarily. Abel's blood was shed. Cain killed his brother. And Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 44, when speaking of the devil, he said that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. So he's going all the way back to Genesis when Cain killed Abel, that although the devil didn't pull the trigger. He influenced Cain to pull the trigger. So when we see people being killed in cold blood, we can deduct from what Jesus taught that they are under the influence of a demonic, devilish, satanic spirit. And so Cain killed Abel, his brother. In Genesis 4.10, God responds. The one who allowed the murder who didn't step in to stop it, giving man free will. Free will and sovereignty work together. It's a mystery. And so God speaks. He speaks and he says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And so God is saying that Abel's blood is speaking. Abel's blood has become personified. Life is in the blood. So although his physical life died, his spiritual life was speaking from the pavement, uh, from the dirt of the ground. 
And as his blood was crying out to God, my question is, what was Abel's blood crying out to God saying? Was Abel crying out for vengeance? Was Abel crying out for God to have mercy on his brother? Now, when some people die, their blood does scream for revenge and for vengeance. But for some people, especially people who've been touched by God, their blood cries out for mercy because mercy, according to the book of James, triumphs over judgment. And when you look at how God handled Cain in the following verses, it might be that Abel, his brother, was interceding on behalf of his murderous brother that God would have mercy on him. But nevertheless, let us see here that blood is crying from the ground. So significant was the blood of Abel that Jesus preached about his blood in Matthew chapter 23, verses 34 through 35. And here's one way God received glory from the violent murder of Abel. Here it is. The life of Abel is an example for all of us because he was accepted by God on the basis of faith and not on the basis of works. Hmm. Did you hear that? Abel's death is not in vain because his life is an example to us that God accepts us on the basis of faith, not on the basis of works. And this may explain deeper why Cain had a problem with Abel, because Cain's offering was not accepted by God, because Cain's offering pointed too much to his works and not enough to God's works. Because Cain had planted a garden and he offered to God uh, 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 an offering from the work of his hands. Whereas Abel offered to God a work of God's hands, creation, a blood sacrifice to God. God accepted the blood, not the work of Cain's hands. So this is a reminder to us that we cannot work with our hands or with our lives to be right with God. We can only be right with God or righteous on the basis of faith. And from that life-changing faith, now there are works that follow our profession. So Abel preaches the gospel to us. As a matter of fact, listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. Ah, do you see that? God received uh, Abel's offering. And Abel, though dead, is still speaking. Abel's been dead for thousands of years. But he is still speaking the gospel from the grave. Do you hear Abel today? Oh, I hear him. And he's saying that we must come to God by grace through faith. In Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. That's the good news. The message of faith is what Abel is still communicating to us today. Now, there's an old saying that says that dead men tell no tales, but this man is preaching the gospel to us. So God received glory from the bloody death of Abel. Secondly, God received glory from the violent death of of Stephen. The Bible says that Stephen was a leader in the church of Jerusalem. He was described in Acts 6 as being a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. He was so full of the Holy Spirit that his face shined like that of an angel. Stephen was a deacon in the church, but he was a deacon with a prophetic voice. And he was not afraid to use that prophetic voice to preach the word of God, even to the point of being stoned to death. In Acts 7, Stephen was wrongfully arrested and brought before the Jewish ruling council. And in an impromptu moment, Stephen gave the mob a sermon that included a history lesson on Israel. 
He preached about 400 years of slavery, bondage, and oppression. He preached how Israel rejected Moses, and listen to this, and how they murdered the prophets that God sent to them. He concluded his fiery sermon by preaching about how they also rejected Jesus and murdered him. So no wonder he spoke again with prophetic roar. He said with prophetic outrage, you are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You can't hear. And he said, and you always resist the Holy Spirit. And so the Bible says that after they heard that word, they lashed on him. Acts chapter 7 verse 54 says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them. With this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Oh, there's so many things I can say about these verses I just read, but one thing that just jumps out right now do you see his heart? He could go from prophetic outrage in one moment to prophetic lamentation in the next moment. He didn't hate the people that killed him, he hated their sin. He hated what they were doing, and he loved them enough to tell them the truth about themselves, even if it meant him getting killed or in our context today, fired from your church or losing friends on social media because you tell the truth about their sin. You're not afraid to call them out. And as he called them out, he also had compassion for them. And he said, like Jesus, Lord, do not hold this against them. Just like Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So this is not hatred. This is love. And this may be, again, the heart that Abel had for his brother. Lord, don't charge this against him. Have mercy on him. And you see the same thing here with, with Stephen saying, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Oh, that's Jesus. That's the spirit of God. No bitterness but definitely speaking truth and giving them love. And so Stephen is stoned right there on a sidewalk, a street outside of Jerusalem, killed by the so-called people of God. And so here's one way that God received glory from the violent death of Stephen. Stephen's death, oh, here at this church, was a turning point for the Apostle Paul because it helped him to experience salvation with Jesus. Let me say it again. Stephen's death, his bloody death, his unnecessary death, his unjust death that God allowed, but he also used because it would become a turning point for the salvation of the Apostle Paul. Because in these verses, we read of the first mention of Saul or Paul in the Bible. And it happens at this massacre. We see here, oh boy, let's see, in verse 59, and they stoned Stephen, no, verse 58, excuse me. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Chapter 8 of Acts, verse 1 says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. So Saul, although he didn't throw a stone, he supported what the murderers was doing. Because at that time, Saul 
was lost. He was zealous, but his zeal was not based on knowledge of the one true God. He thought he was doing God's work by persecuting Christians and locking them up and consenting to their death. He was sincere, but brother man was sincerely wrong. And it would take Stephen's death, his blood, to begin to plant a seed that would lead to Paul, Saul's conversion. You know, it's been said that the blood of the martyrs is the fuel of the church. And in this case, the blood of Stephen would lead Paul to the blood of Jesus. So Stephen's blood was not spilt in vain because God used Stephen's stoning to turn Saul, a complicit accomplice to murder, to turn him into Paul, who would be a relentless preacher of the gospel. The late rapper Tupac Shakur said something very significant. He said in an interview, I'm not saying I'm, go I'm going to change the world, but I guarantee that I will spark the brain that will change the world. So Tupac said, I'm not saying that I'm going to change the world, but I guarantee that I'm going to spark the brain of the person who will change the world. Now, Stephen's life did not change the world. But Stephen's life and death changed Paul and God used Paul to change the world. Did you get that? We're here today because of Paul's work. Uh, we read our Bible, 13 letters in the New Testament written by this former murderer and one who was complicit to the murder of Stephen. His radical transformation by the grace of God has blessed all of us to this day. The world has been changed. Churches have been planted all over the then known world because of this apostle. And so God used the devastation of Stephen's death to transform Saul into Paul. You see, if Emmett Till had not been tragically murdered in August of 1955, Rosa Parks would not have sat down on the bus in December of 1955. It was the death, the violent, brutal death of a teenager in Mississippi that spread even into Alabama so that a seamstress coming home from work said, I've had enough. I'm not getting up out of the colored section to give my seat to a white man. I'm, I'm going to remain in my seat. And had Emmett Till not died, Rosa Parks would not sat down because she attributes many of the practitioners of the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s say that they got fed up when Emmett Till was murdered. And had Emmett Till not been murdered, Rosa Parks would not have sat down and Martin Luther King would not have stood up. We would not have heard of Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks had it not been for the victimization and the literal lynching of Emmett Till. Stephen's death left a lasting impact on Paul. Paul in Acts 22 shared his testimony with a group of hostile Jews in Jerusalem. And in his testimony, he mentioned Stephen. Acts chapter 22, verse 20 says, And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. So there it is. So as he's sharing his testimony, years later, he can't, get that image out of his mind. And Paul said, I was there consenting to this man's death. But thanks be to God, Paul went from consenting to repenting over the death of Stephen. And I pray that we would not be complicit nor consent or make excuses for why people get killed by a system that is meant to protect them. But oh, if I had a moment, I'd chase a rabbit into the history of this nation and how the police department really sprung forth from the slave patrols um, that came about after the slaves had been set free in 1865 by the 13th Amendment.
and how these slave patrols were used to round up black people. There were vagrancy laws that would, would, would round up black people and put them into jail. And in jail, they would be used to work fields and to get into private uh, leasing situations. So, so slavery didn't really uh, uh, end in 1865, according to Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative. It just evolved. And this massive prison industrial complex that we have today gets its roots from that time coming in 1865 with the slave patrols, the overseers, the officers of today. And so unless we call that spirit out, we can't defeat it. Unless we go back and, and dig up that history the way Stephen did with his people, we won't understand why we do the things we do today. We got to go back and understand that history. And we have to redeem that. We have to buy it back. There needs to be some changes to occur. But I'm so glad God got the glory from Stephen's life. Finally, and most importantly, mm -mm -mm, God received glory from the violent death of Jesus Christ. Earlier this week, I received a question from a family member back in Baltimore. And this question was, if Jesus um, had never died on the cross, if he had lived and if he had gotten to a place where he died of old age, could he have still saved us from our sins if he didn't die at age 33 but died later of old age? Now, there are many problems <laughs> in that question, but at the root of the question, uh, this family member was asking me, um, did Jesus have to die on the cross in order to save us? And my answer to uh, this person was, Jesus had to die on the cross. He, he couldn't save us by dying of natural causes. He could only save us by shedding his blood. Why is that? Because God is the one who set the terms. Because the life of the flesh is in the blood, the Bible says. So God demands life for life or blood for blood. And back in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve had sinned, God slew an animal, something died. To cover them temporarily, their animal skin was placed on Adam and Eve's nakedness. So an animal died so that they wouldn't have to die physically that day. Something else died. But then God prophesied in Genesis 3.15. And I will put, and he's speaking to the devil, who deceived them. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. See how seed is capitalized? That's speaking of Jesus. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God prophesied that there would be a battle, a spiritual battle between his seed and against Satan in order to buy back, redeem mankind from the grip and penalty of sin. So God prophesied that his seed, his son would come and he would suffer. He would be bruised. And we know the prophet Isaiah picked up in Isaiah 53 that Jesus would be bruised for our iniquities. But if I go back to Isaiah chapter 52, the prophet gives us a little bit more insight into the bruising of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 52 verse 13 reads, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. So the prophet prophesied the brutal death of Jesus. We know in the Psalms, the psalmist also prophesied that the Messiah's hands would be pierced. So Jesus would die by way of crucifixion. But here in Isaiah 52, the prophet said that the servant, God's servant, would be marred. And this word marred means corrupted. It means to impair the appearance of something, to literally disfigure it. 
So when we think of this Hebrew word that was used that Jesus would be marred when he hung on the cross for our sins, Jesus' natural appearance was corrupted. Jesus' natural appearance was impaired and even disfigured. And Isaiah said he was disfigured beyond any other human being. So meaning on the cross, Jesus was beaten to a pulp. He wasn't even recognizable. No, his bones were not broken, but they were out of joint, the Bible says. And so as we look at the cross, there's an irony. Yes, the cross is beautiful because that is the, the root of our redemption. But the cross is also tragic. The cross is bloody. The cross is ugly. The cross disfigured Jesus, beat him down, and there he suffered for our sins. But, but, God would get glory out of something that was gory. God would get glory out of something that was gory. And right there, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 27, verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So this means he died. And no one took his life. He laid it down. He breathed his last. He determined when he was going to die. And when it was finished, not when he was finished, when it was finished, when it was paid for, he decided to breathe his last breath and die. The Bible says in Matthew 27, Verse 54. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. So before they put him up there, they didn't believe he was the Son of God. But after watching how he died and how he was brutalized on that cross, and how he spoke love to thieves who were on that cross because they deserved it. Telling one of them, you can be with me today in paradise. When they heard him whisper love to his mother. When they heard him forgive the people who put him there. Hearing him speak and watching him die changed the centurion. Changed the enemy. Because the Jews considered the Europeans, the white folks. The enemy. But Jesus' love changed this man. And this man said, truly, 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 this was the son of God. So God got glory out of the death of his son right there in that spot where the centurion and others with him became born again. And this was before the resurrection. So God got glory. Out of his son's death. That was the purpose of his son's dying. Was that other people may live. So God uses blood. To produce life. In the movie. Amistad. Which tells of. A group of slaves who had. Captured a slave ship. That they had been placed upon. Tells that story. True life story. Um, there is a scene when the captured slaves begin to read the Bible. By learning about the suffering of Jesus, they received hope in the midst of their suffering. Because they're sitting there saying, what did we do to deserve this? But by looking at pictures in a Bible, they could see that Jesus didn't do anything to deserve what happened to him. As a result, the enslaved were able to identify with God's servant or God's slave, Jesus. The suffering of Jesus breathed life into the suffering slaves. Because what good is a savior if he doesn't know anything about suffering? What good is a messiah? If he cannot moan with you. And what good is a high priest. If that high priest cannot hurt 
like you do. But that's why Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. Not only for Jews, but also for Gentiles. But even this gospel message really radiates and permeates with those who suffer unjustly. Because their savior suffered unjustly. It was for a cause. It was for a purpose. It was redemptive. And that's the only reason I'm here today. Is because of the blood of Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus. That's the only reason I'm here today. Something good came out of that tragedy. The only reason I'm saved today. Is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh my goodness. That's the gospel. And that's what our God can do. So we saw that God received glory. From the violent deaths. Of Abel. Stephen. In Jesus Christ. And I believe God will receive glory from the violent deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. I do not believe that their deaths were in vain. I believe God is saying, trust me during this season where violence is being perpetrated against unarmed African American men and women. I believe God is saying, trust me. In this season, God is saying, trust me, their deaths are not in vain. Trust me, I will save and change systems as a result of, rather, I will save people and change systems as a result of their bloodshed. Trust me, God is saying, because out of the ashes will arise another Stephen. Out of the ashes of what is going on in our culture today will arise another Rosa Parks, another Martin Luther King. God will raise up a leader out of this mess, out of these tragedies, and he will get the glory and he will change a culture. No, those deaths are not in vain. They're not in vain. Several months ago, Nashville was hit with a tornado. From the tornado, we move right into this pandemic, but Nashville was hit with a tornado and there was massive devastation and destruction. Several trees were uprooted and knocked down. And so as the restoration process began and people began to um, pick up debris and metals and to clean the streets, they also had to deal with fallen trees. And in order to deal with these fallen trees, people came out, ordinary citizens, regular folks with chainsaws. And they began to cut those trees in pieces so that what was once monstrous and even impeding progress was now chopped up, cut up into pieces and hauled away. So people did that. Let me to let you know that there is a tree named racism. It has a pseudo name also, uh, white supremacy. And this tree has been growing in America for 400 years. And I believe this tree is falling down and its roots are being exposed. This massive tree is falling down. And, and this tree, my ancestors were lynched on down through the years. And their lifeless bodies have swung from this tree of white supremacy like strange fruit. But I am reminded of the words of John the Baptist in John chapter, in Matthew chapter 3, where he said, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God will raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So John came preaching repentance for people to change and for the nation to change and the corruption within the priestly system 
the corruption within, the marketing system. John the Baptist confronted all of that, but he also warned people that there is an ax and it's at the root of the tree to cut the tree down from the root to expose, to pull up the corruption is what he was saying. Because those trees are not bearing good fruit. The same God who inspired John the Baptist is at work today. And I believe that God is finally exposing this tree. He cut off pieces of it throughout the years, but now it's time to pull the rest of it up by its roots. And it has toppled and it is laying in front of us. And I believe God is saying to you and he's saying to me, go get your chainsaw. We don't need to wait on the professionals to come and remove this. They, they're not going to move this. The people need to move this. Go get your chainsaw or the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And start doing some slicing and dicing. Start cutting down this system of racism and white supremacy and institutional injustice. Cut it up in pieces and haul it off to hell so that God can plant some new trees that will bear some good fruit. If not in my life, what I pray in the life of my children. Father, thank you how you can get glory from innocent blood being shed. Lord, would you help our nation? We're struggling. We're sad. We're angry. We're confused. We're overwhelmed, but you are steady, you are strong, you're up to something. You are working this to a redemptive end and you will be glorified. Light will be shown upon you. Oh God, would you show your church what we can do as your hands and feet to capture this moment so that this moment doesn't pass us by. May we be brave with the help of the Holy Spirit to not only be pastoral, to shepherd and love people, but might we also be prophetic to speak the truth to people, to speak the truth to power so that the blood of these precious people will not be in vain. We rise up as your church, Lord. You are the hero. We go in your name and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.